Good morning again, dear church. It's good to see all of you uh, here today. Um, Some of you know that for about six months now, we've been looking for a new pastor here at Third. Um, This pastor, we're calling this pastor the pastor of discipleship and parish ministry um, with this special calling of overseeing this new uh, parish model of our church, overseeing and training, especially in equipping and supporting the leaders both of the parish areas and also the, the parish groups. And we're excited to tell you that the, the session, the elders this week, um, called and extended an invitation to Derek Mondu uh, to be the next pastor in this role. Um, let me just show you a picture of him and his family here, if I have it. Uh, Alex, I'm at the end of the slideshow here. Oh, there we go. Uh, we hired Derek because of his beard, if you'll <laughs> notice. Uh, we thought it was very fitting for Richmond. Um, he actually has a much shorter beard now. He's, he's cut it uh, close. But um, let me tell you a little bit about Derek. He is a Richmond native. He, gra- he is an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell um, Theological Seminary. Uh, for 14 years, he's now served with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship along with his wife, Sue. Uh, most recently, Derek served as the Shenandoah Area Director for IV, overseeing about 1,100 students at JMU and UVA. Um, and during that time, God grew InterVarsity at UVA from a single chapter of 40 students to a multi-chapter, multi-ethnic community of 500 students who disciple one another, and many, many students uh, at UVA have come to know Jesus through the ministry of Derek at UVA. So he has a wonderful passion for people. He's a visionary, a preacher, an evangelist, a discipler, a shepherd. Um, he's married to Sue, two little boys, Fisher and Remy, and he'll start November 1st. So they're getting ready to sell their house right now, and, and you'll, you'll be seeing them soon. So please pray for him, pray for Sue, pray for their transition. We are in a sermon series this fall called Welcome. We are looking at seven different metaphors of the church in the Bible, and we've been saying in different ways each week that we are all infected uh, by a common diseases of our culture. The first cultural disease we've talked about, you remember, is individualism, the supremacy of the self, which has made us, interestingly, more lonely and isolated than any culture has ever known. The second cultural disease we've talked about is consumerism, the commodification of everything, which has made us more discontent and self-centered and restless than ever before. And the good news is that God wants something better for you. He is inviting you. He's inviting you out of isolation and into relationship. He's inviting you out of restlessness and into mission, a life of meaning. And so he's saying to all of you, welcome. He's inviting every person to experience his welcome through this new community called the church. And so we've learned so far that the church is the household of God, uh, the temple, the salt and light of the world, the field, the flock, uh, and this week... We're turning to one of the most famous metaphors for the church in the New Testament, and that is the body. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, a famous chapter about the body, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 27. So turn there with me and pray with me as we go to God's Word. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that we have already heard the gospel proclaimed today. You've called us to this place. We confessed our sin to you. You extended mercy to us again through Jesus. 
We just heard the choir sing to us about this beautiful diverse unity you've called us to in Christ. We need you to cement these truths deep in our hearts so that we not only hear them but are changed by them. So we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit today in me and in all of us so that we would not just hear your word but we would respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. It is given to each of you in love. Verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, listen to this, kids. This is pretty funny. Paul is trying to be funny here. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. Listen to this. If the whole body were an eye, can you imagine that? One big eyeball. Where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, well, you'd hear real well, but where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And then, listen to this, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment at all but god has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other if one part suffers Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Years ago, there was a Purdue biologist named William Muir. And he was studying the productivity of chickens which is actually not that hard to do. You count eggs, right? That's how you count the productivity of chickens. And he, the way he did this study is he had two flocks and he wanted to measure what kind of flock is most productive. So the first flock he suggests, he selected very average chickens. He made just a, an incredibly average flock and he just completely left it alone for six generations, okay? The second flock though, he selected only the most highly productive chickens, that he could find, what he called super chickens. And he put these chickens together in what he called the super flock. And each generation in this flock, he would select only the most productive chickens for breeding. So are you, are you with me on this? He has two flocks. One is an average flock. One is the super flock, six generations. What do you think happened? Which flock was more productive? Well, the first group after six generations, the average flock was, was plump. It was fully feathered. Um, Egg production had increased dramatically. The second flock, the super flock, what do you think happened to the super flock? All 
but three of the chickens were dead. They pecked each other to death. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm totally serious. They, the, indiv- the three individually highly yielding productive chickens achieved great personal success, but only by suppressing, a.k.a. murdering, the productivity of the rest of the flock. Now, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, that's my family. Or, that, or that's, that's my workplace. Um, but friends, unfortunately, it is oftentimes the church. In fact, Paul is writing here to a group of Christians in Corinth who are behaving like a bunch of super chickens. They, they are preoccupied, each of them, with their own greatness. They're fascinated with the flashy uh, public spiritual gifts. They're competing with each other for spiritual glory. And, and as a result, they are pecking each other to death. And Paul is writing to urge them to desist. And so he pulls out this beautiful and now famous metaphor of the body, a a metaphor that urges unity and interdependence among the members of the community. This is what they needed to hear. And I will say this, friends, this is what we need to hear. Because we live in a society, do we not, that loves super chickens. You know, we love and worship celebrities and superstars, even the celebrity pastors, And we believe in this myth of the towering personality who can do it all and change the world. And we learn even from a very young age that we must compete with each other for our own individual greatness. And we import all that nonsense into the church. And so we need to hear Paul. We need to hear him on this metaphor of the body because this is a problem that we are infected by also. Okay, so let's look at these three things when we talk about the body today. First, let's look at the importance of the body. Why this is so important to Paul that we would get this. Second, the, the functioning of the body. What, what does it take for this body to function in a healthy way? And then finally, the power of the body. What's the power the body needs to be enlivened for its, its work in the world? So first, let's watch something in this verse that is very interesting. Look at this verse carefully with me, and I'm going to add a marker thing. Um, so it says this, just as a body, though one, has many parts but all its parts form one body, so it is with, can you see that? With Christ. Now, isn't that interesting he says that? He is talking about the church. He's talking about the functioning of the church, the healthy membership of the church. You would expect him to say, just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with the church. But instead, he says, Christ. It's almost like he's using the word church and Christ interchangeably. You say, Paul, are you talking about Christ or are you talking about the church? And Paul says, yes. Because for Paul, the church is so important because it is interchangeable for him with Christ's presence in the world. And what's fascinating about this is that Paul, in many ways, may have learned this from an incident in his own life. And those of you who know the story of Paul might remember this, that before Paul was Paul, he was called Saul, and he was not just not a Christian, he was a murderer of Christians. And so one day, uh, Paul was on a journey to Damascus, and he was riding his horse or his donkey or whatever, and suddenly the risen, ascended Jesus appeared to Paul. And do you remember what he said? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul looks up and he's like, what? I've never met you. I'm not messing with you. I'm, I'm messing with all these people. Over here. But Jesus is emphatic. He says, no, you 
He, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Or why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? You touch them, you touch me. You beat them, you beat me. You mess with them, you mess with me. Jesus binds himself that indissolubly with his people, the church. So that those who believe and follow Jesus are actually now that connected and bound to him that to be near to the church is to be near to him. God actually brings the church up into his own life, bringing us in union with Jesus, binding us to him every bit as much as your head, hopefully, is bound to your body. That's how close we are the church with Jesus. So this is why the healthy functioning of the body is so important because the church is the continuation of Jesus' ministry in the world. Here's a little quiz. How many books, kids, do you know this? How many books did the gospel writer Luke write? Do you know? How many books did he write? Any adults know? Two, yeah, what were they? Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Acts, right? And so the Gospel of Luke is about what? The ministry of Jesus. And the Gospel of Acts is what about what? The ministry of the church. What was so interesting, chapter one, verse one of Acts says this. In my first book, this is Luke saying, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up into heaven. So look, if the book of Luke is all about what Jesus began to do, what is the book of Acts? Class? What Jesus continues to do. Like a movie sequel, Jesus is the main actor, the same hero, the same plot. It's the second part of the story, but Jesus is now acting in and through his spiritual body of the church. Just as Jesus was the physical embodiment of God in the first century Palestine. So now the church is the physical embodiment of God in every nation of the earth. Now, let me be clear. Jesus has his own body. Do y'all understand that? He is risen from the dead. He's ascended at the right hand of the father. Not sure what he's doing. He's got fingernails though. He's got earlobes. He's got hair. Not sure he combs it every day, but he's got every bit as much of a physical body as you and I do. And so he doesn't need <laughs> he, he is very capable of redeeming and renewing the world on his own. And yet in his mercy, he has, he has claimed a second spiritual body, his spirit-empowered people, to continue his presence in the world. He has so fused himself with his church that to see his people is to see Jesus. To encounter his people is to encounter Jesus. To touch his people is to touch Jesus. To hear his people is to hear Jesus. And the world needs this, friends. People don't just need to hear about the love of God in Christ. They heard that a thousand times from the guy holding up the John 3.16 sign behind home plate. They've seen that guy. But they need to encounter Jesus. They need to touch Jesus. They need to feel his compassion. And when brothers, and like this morning at 8.15, when about 10 of us gathered in the parlor to lay our hands upon our brother who is, who is suffering from end-stage cancer, the very hands of Jesus were laid upon him. When our sister Martha here experienced the, the, the desolation of being separated from her dear husband Jack last week, and the church came around her, the very person of Jesus wrapped himself around you, Martha. When the, when the members of Caritas when the homeless men, men and women and boys and girls who will be here for a week and our church gathers around them and serves them and cooks food, they will be eating food cooked by the very hands of Jesus. When a parish group gathers on a Sunday night to watch Sunday night football with their neighbors, Jesus watches the Redskins 
Yeah, we're not sure whether he cheers for the Redskins, but Jesus sits and watches and participates in community with our neighbors. See, friends, Jesus is the, the church is the embodied presence of Jesus in the world. And this is why it is so vital that we get this right. Because our life, the life of the church, is the very presence of Jesus' risen life in the world. Okay, that's the importance of the body. Second, though, if this is so important, how shall the body function? How does it it work in a healthy way? So in verses 13 through 27, Paul lays out three key principles for how the body of Christ is called to function in a healthy way so that we can be the embodied presence of Jesus in the world. The first is unity, verse 13. First century Greco-Roman society was extremely divided and separated and segregated ethnically, socially, culturally, religiously. Yet something amazing had happened in this city of Corinth. Jesus had saved men and women, boys and girls, from all these different backgrounds and ethnicities and groups. And suddenly you had this group of people who had never been together before outside of the church, and frankly, a lot of them didn't even like each other. And so over time, the Corinthian Christians began to mimic the same kinds of patterns of separation and division and segregation that were present in the society around them. And Paul is angry. He's upset about this. So verse 13, he writes this. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. There should be no division in the body. Paul is emphatic that despite our many differences, we must make unity an absolutely priority in the church because we are representing Jesus in the world. Just as when the parts of, a, of, of your body are not operating together, and some of you have had that happen, or one part of your body turns against the other parts of the body, such as in a, a cancer or something, the body disintegrates. And so it is with the body of Christ. When we allow any division to exist among us, we are a false representative of Jesus in the world. Let me just mention two implications of this. First, for our local church here at 3rd. Friends, I'm excited about what's going on in our church because we have, we have a lot of different kinds of people in our church. And you might not be able to see this as much, especially if you've been around here for a while, but um, I get to see a lot of this, this because of my perspective and that I talk and hear so many of your stories. But we have a lot of different kinds of people gathered in our church. Many different generations, different cultures, different political views, different income levels, different languages even, all together in one congregation, which is beautiful, but which means we must be all the more zealous about striving for unity as a body and refuse to mirror the patterns of cultural and political and generational segregation that are so pervasive in the culture around us. Jesus said, Paul says, be not like the world. We must refuse to do this and stretch as far as we can to make our church a place of welcome for people of all different backgrounds and cultures. In fact, when we experience a conflict of any kind, we must be zealous about pursuing peace. In fact, we have a whole peacemaking ministry here that Margie Satterfield here leads, and I'm sure you're happy that I'm promoting your ministry right now. Um, but I, we, would, we urge you to make unity in the body an utmost priority so that we may clearly exhibit the unity of Jesus. Second, though, if this isn't just about our local church, it's also about the whole church of Richmond. Did you know that when God looks at Richmond, he does not see Third Church and Hope Church and Redemption Hill Church and City Church and 
Mount Gilead Full Gospel Church and First Baptist. He sees the church of Richmond. That's what he sees. And instead, you know what happens? And it's, it's a lot to blame on pastors like me, is that we turn our churches into just super chickens fighting for each other, fighting against each other, pecking at each other, competing for, for members and scarce resources. And, and Jesus is grieved. This is a mockery of the unity for which Jesus' blood was shed. We strive for unity, not just in our church, but across churches in our city. This is why I try to give a lot of my time to the, 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 the work of Bless Richmond's which seeks to bring together many pastors and churches of many different denominations because we must, in a, in a time of unprecedented tribalism and polarization in our society, the church is called to model unity as a witness to Jesus. Okay, that's unity. Second, though, diversity. And this is where Paul spends the majority of his words, verses 14 through 23. Being called to unity does not mean we're called to uniformity. Yet that was happening in Corinth. We can see there were at least a couple of unhealthy patterns happening. First of all, there were people who were feeling inferior and useless because they were comparing themselves to the super chickens in the church. Because, look at verse 15. Because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Some people were feeling like because they didn't have more prominent public gifts, they were not as useful to the community. Verse 20, on the other hand, though, there were some people who were feeling superior. So in verse 21... Some people were saying, well, I don't need you. The eye saying to the hand, you know, I don't need you. Looking down on people that seemed weaker or less important, not seeing their gifts and contributions as valuable. We can get along without you. So here we have this community. Some people are feeling inferior. Other people are feeling superior. But all of it came down to the same root problem that every, the church is looking for everybody to be the same. And Paul says, no, just as a human body can only function with diverse parts, so God intends diversity in his body. Look at verse 18. God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. What would happen if the body were just one big ear? Can you imagine that? Maybe even draw a, tri- you draw a picture of that, kids, in your bulletin. What would happen if it was just a big, huge ear? Or what if you were just a big spleen? A big spleen, that's all you are. Or a big pinky toe. That's just weird, right? Every single part is equally important and valuable for the health of the whole. Did you know that you have something in your body called the islets of Langerhorns? The islets of Langerhorns? That sounds like a, a, a Swiss resort town. Or, or someplace in Middle Earth between Misty Mountains and Rohan or something, right? The islets of Langerhorns. But apparently these are tiny cells in the pancreas that contain beta cells that produce insulin in response to blood glucose concentrations. So sometimes they are rendered non-functional by an autoimmune attack, which results in, an, in a glucose and acid buildup in the bloodstream, which then inevitably leads to death. And this is why people with type 1 diabetes have to take insulin injections because their islets of Langerhorns are non-functional. Praise God for islets of Langerhorns. You know, and you didn't even know you had them, I would guess. And so you have been, every part has a special role to play in contributing to the health of the whole. And in fact, Paul makes this point so strong to say that those parts that seem to be weaker and that appear to be less prominent and important are actually indispensable. Imagine getting on a plane and the pilot comes on the intercom and says, this, this is the captain speaking. So glad you've chosen to fly with us today. You may have noticed that your ticket was much cheaper than normal. 
the reason is because we decided to get rid of all the employees that you never actually see. <laughs> so those maintenance guys who service the plane, got rid of them. Uh, the navigator, he, I mean, you only really need him when it's foggy. You know, we got rid of him. The, 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 the air traffic controller up in the tower. I mean, what does that guy even do? We got rid of him. And all those security people who examined the, the check bags for weapons, you know, we got rid of them too. So we gave you a cheap ticket. Have a nice flight. You're getting off that plane, I would guess. <laughs> You're running off that. Nobody wants to fly in that plane. Why? Because the parts that seem weaker are more hidden less prominent, are actually indispensable. In fact, if you notice in the Bible, God is always choosing the weak and the seemingly disposable and expendable and overlooked of the world to do the greatest things. The barren woman, the youngest son, the weakest child, the forgotten slave. These are the people that God chooses to do his mightiest work. Those that the world finds disposable are now indispensable in the economy of God, which is the church. And this is very important, friends, at Third Church for us to hear this in a church like ours when so many of us are powerful and privileged and affluent in the world. And we, need, we, need, we often think that the weak and the needy need us, but we, the strong and powerful, need them. What if you saw your brother and sister in Christ, maybe someone who is very old or someone who is very young, someone who is disabled or differently abled than you, someone who is of a different race or culture or who speaks a different language, Maybe someone who just isn't put together as others. What if you saw that person as someone indispensable that God has given to the body and given you for spiritual health? Or maybe there is someone here at the church that you find very difficult or annoying. Come on, y'all. You know who I'm talking about. You all have one. You know, someone that you find difficult, annoying, a group that you find difficult to work with in the church. You wish you could just kind of avoid them so you could get along with the work that needs to be done. Could you see that God has given this person to you as a gift for the building up of the body as a whole? God has arranged the parts of the body just as he wanted them to be. So that's diversity. And finally, interdependency. Look at verse 25. The parts of the body should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored... Every part rejoices with it. Paul is saying, you, each part of the body has a stake in the well-being of every other. Last night, I was walking through my house barefoot, and I stepped uh, on a tack, that, and it plunged all the way up into my foot. And I'm telling you, my earlobes felt the pain. Like, every part of me. And I started whining like a baby trying to find my wife to help me. You know, or, or you know this if you've ever had a toothache. And you wake up in the middle of the night. And, and, and it is all-consuming. Your fingers feel it. Your teeth, every part of you feels it. Just for one little tiny tooth. When one part suffers, every part suffers with it. In the body of Christ, we are bound together so that we not only share our gifts... But we share our sufferings. And who wants to share that? We share our sorrows. We share our joys. We bring the burdens of one another into our own lives. You know, I was very moved. And I asked her permission um, if I could share this. I was speaking with one of our um, members who is African-American, who's actually temporarily moved away for her job. She'll be moving back in about a year. Um, But she shared with me very vulnerably that after the election last year, it was very, very difficult for her 
to continue attending a majority white congregation as a black woman. And she was having a very, very difficult time. And so much so that she started uh, not coming. And what was beautiful is that one of her friends, another member of our church who's white, who had gotten to know her and become good friends with her through a women's Bible study, noticed her absence and rang her up, uh, found her, talked with her, said, I need to understand your pain. I need to understand uh, what it's like to be a black woman in America today. I need to understand what it's like to be a a person of color in a majority white church. I I need to understand this and hear from you on this. And they began to meet weekly and read books together and hear from each other's perspectives and grow together. Friends, that does not happen in America today. When we don't understand each other, what do we do? We ignore and accuse and shut each other down. But that does not happen in the church of God. We are bound together to know and be known. We hear and we bear each other's sorrows. So for that to happen, you have to be known and you have to know. To suffer and rejoice with others, you have to be so embedded enough in the community that you can actually be familiar with the joys and the sorrows of others here. Are you? Are you? How well do you know the joys and sorrows of others here in the church? How well do you know the places of highest, how well do others know the places of joy and sorrow in your own life? We've got to push hard against that West End country club mentality that so easily seeps into the church, you know, where we just come looking our best, looking nice. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. My perfect life is just going perfect. You know, we've got to push against that, my friends, and open up our places of vulnerability to one another. And I, and I just want to say, I'm excited because I am seeing you all do this in really beautiful ways opening yourselves up and sharing the places of brokenness and vulnerability like I've never seen. Keep it up because the temptation persists. We bear one another's burdens and our sorrows. So friends, let me me, uh, summarize, I think, what Paul is saying in this point, the functioning of the body. If you had to summarize it, I think he would be saying we're called to individuality in community. The church is neither individualistic nor socialistic. You know, in modern democratic societies, the rights and the demands of the individual tend to be so supreme that it trumps the common good, the good of all. Whereas in classic socialism, the unique qualities of the individual are absorbed into the collective whole. Not so the church. As an individual, you are incredibly unique. You have something to contribute. You are invaluable to the body. You have something to bring that only you can bring. Yet at the same time, that gift is only sensical in the context of the whole. To think that you can flourish spiritually without being connected to the body of Christ is like thinking a finger can do just fine severed from a hand. And you know that's not going to work out. And so one of our hopes for the parish model is that we can make this kind of diverse, unified, interdependent community more possible. You know, sociologists have told us this, we know this, that No one can really engage in a network of meaningful relationships that's larger than 150 people. We just can't do that. We weren't designed to do that as humans. In fact, the larger an organization gets, the more anonymous and passive people become. And this is why, and some of you actually probably who were here decades ago when third was only a couple hundred people, remember this, is that once a church becomes much larger than a couple hundred people, the culture of, of a church shifts from being relational to being attractional, from being person-centered to being event-centered. 
Uh, and, and where eventually you see church is basically just a few people doing all the work and everyone else is just watching. And as far as I know, there is no spiritual gift of passive observation, not even in second hesitations. And I've read the, I've read the whole book. <laughs> and friends, that is not what God intended for, for his church. He intends for everyone to be engaged, everyone to contribute. And the smaller the community, the more likely that's to happen. So that's why we're doing this. We're creating groups of 100 to 150 called parish areas where you have the opportunity to be known. And then we're also creating these parish groups of 15 to 20 that you can join and truly have a place to contribute. We're hoping to facilitate an environment where every person in the church at third can be seen, known, loved, and have a place to belong and contribute. So that's what we're looking for, right? Okay, we've seen the, the importance of the body, the, the, the functioning of the body, and one last very brief point here, the power of the body. This is just simply his. How will we ever have the power to do this? Y'all, I am just a selfish man. And I do not want to share your suffering because I have enough suffering and sorrow of my own. And, and frankly, I often don't want to use what I have for the common good. I just want to use it for myself. And frankly, sometimes I'm just not energized to partner with brothers and sisters to be the presence of Jesus in our neighborhood, sacrificing time and energy that I would rather use for myself. I'm just selfish. And I'm guessing a lot of you are too. So why would we want to do this? And how do we have the power to do this? And not just repeat what's happening in Corinth. Every super chicken for himself. Well, another place that Paul talks about the body is the book of Ephesians. And this is what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far away and you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his physical body the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross. Friends, listen, you were far away. In your sin, you are cut off. You are like a, a severed part, separated from the body. Without life and without eternity in the world. But what this is saying is that the good news is that the whole Trinity has conspired to get you back. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have unified in a common mission to restore broken sinners into fellowship. And at the heart of that common mission is the broken body of Jesus. His tortured, bloodied, nailed, disfigured, executed body as Jesus gave himself for the life of the world. This is my body, he said, broken for you. Take it. Take it. The one with all the power, all the glory, given up his body for the sake of sinners, his physical body broken, so that I and you can be a part of his spiritual body forever. That is what I need to overcome my selfishness, the gospel. That is what we all need every day to be reconverted to the gospel. As Paul says later in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself in love as each part does its work. The power of the body is the head. The degree to which I, as a selfish man, go to Jesus every day in repentance and faith, receiving his mercy for me again and again. The degree to which we communally stay connected to our head is the degree to which we will flourish as a body. As together we know Jesus, meditate on Jesus, 
follow Jesus, surrender to Jesus, abide in Jesus, experience Jesus, the more power we gain to live as his body in the world and to give ourselves to each other and to our neighbors. Our power is in the head. So let me close. Here's the good news, friends. Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven and he's right now making all things new. And guess what? He doesn't even need us to do it. He's got his own body. And yet, in his mercy, he has invited us into his risen life so much that we are now participating with him as his body in the world. Whenever we gather around word and sacrament, we are his body. Whenever we scatter in every neighborhood and industry of the city, we are his body. And his work can be done when we commit to unity, we honor our diversity, and we live interdependently, looking every day to Christ, our head, for strength. So friends, hear me on this. Let it be declared, Third Church, there are no super chickens here. No one here is a super Christian. And let it be clear, we are not trying to make Third into a super church. There is only a super God who uses everyday average chickens and everyday average flocks for his supernatural purposes to be the embodiment of the mercy, love, and grace of Jesus, our head, in the world. May that be so. May that be so for us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, that Jesus, our head, was crushed. His body was broken and shattered and bloodied and killed. That we, broken sinners, could be incorporated into his spiritual body forever. We thank you for this mysterious truth of the gospel. Save us by it once again, dear Lord. Save us from our selfishness. Save me from my selfishness. Save us from our pettiness and pride. Save us from our inability to hear and love one another and to walk beside one another. Save us from from using all that we have for ourselves rather than for one another. Save us from making others feel inferior and unseen and unloved. And save us from, from looking at ourselves as if we were inferior and unloved. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Renew us. Make us into your body so that we can be the enfleshed presence of Jesus in every neighborhood of Richmond and indeed the whole world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.